Welcome to Supreme Myths. I am so excited today to have my um, friend and someone I've admired for a very long time uh, on the pod, Professor James Fleming, we'll call him Jim for the, re for re for the rest of the podcast, is the Honorable Paul J. Leacos, Professor of Law at Boston University. He went to Missouri undergraduate, has a JD from Harvard and a PhD from Princeton. He has written too many articles and essays to talk about. He's the author of five books on his own, a bunch of other co-authored books. Um, he might be the leading expert on Ronald Dworkin in the United States. And uh, uh, followers of this podcast will understand this. He might be one of the most piercing critics of new originalism uh, of anyone that I have read. And a lot of my work, frankly, is derivative of his. Jim, welcome to the pod. Thanks. Uh, and it's good to have the two... Uh, most anti-originalist scholars in American <laughs> law having a conversation. So it's good we're not just going to talk about originalism and have a have a feast. Uh, no, in <laughs> fact, we're not. We're almost not going to talk about. We'll talk about that a little bit, but not a lot. What you're yeah. really here to talk about is your great new book, and I say great new book, even though. I don't know if I agree with a lot of the solutions and suggestions you propose, but this is a very important book, and I also believe this book will definitely stand the test of time. It is called, um, um, sorry, uh, Constructing Basic Liberties, A Defense of Substantive Due Process. You've written so many books, I was confused for a minute. Again, Constructing Basic Liberties, A Defense of substantive due process. By the way, that title, A Defense of Substantive Due Process, is not something we see all that often. So <laughs> let's start with why you wrote this book and why you're defending substantive due process. Okay. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Eric. Um, well, I wrote this book and I gave it that subtitle in part because I do think that it's been an embattled doctrine for many years. Even uh, uh, doubted by the people who want to believe it's sound. And so what I try to do in this book is work up uh, the strongest defense I could muster of the practice to show that it doesn't really suffer from all of the flaws that its critics have leveled at it. Um, and also... Um, to uh, uh, give uh, liberals and progressives who uh, have doubted it uh, firmer ground uh, to stand on. Um, now, all of that is very abstract, but let me just go back to the beginning. Maybe we should say what substantive due yes, process is. Yes, I was going to say. I was going to okay. say. So, so, right, so okay. the, tell the folks right. what the 14th Amendment says, and why don't you start with the basic textual objection? To substantive okay. due process. Okay. Well, the 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 due process clause uh, in the Fourteenth Amendment uh, says, uh, "Nor shall any state." Let me get the exact wording. Um, Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And there are two basic, fundamentally different readings of this clause. One of them stresses the word process. So it reads the clause to mean, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. <laughs> In other words, the state may deprive us of life, liberty, and property as long as it follows established procedures for doing so. The other reading stresses 
liberty as well as process. So it reads the clause to mean or to say, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law. And it reads liberty as um, uh, 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 protecting basic liberties or fundamental rights. Uh, those that are essential to the scheme of ordered liberty, that's the famous phrase, in our constitutional democracy. And so to go back to the basic question, I saw a number of basic liberties that the Supreme Court has protected over time under this doctrine. Uh, and I saw that notwithstanding all of the worries about how indeterminate and undemocratic substantive due process is, and despite all the conservatives' worries that it amounted to liberals reading a liberal moral and political utopia into the Constitution <laughs> under the guise of interpreting it, when you look at the rights that we've actually protected under the doctrine, it's actually quite modest and actually quite conservative. And most of the rights on that list are rights that nobody, liberal or conservative, wants the state to tell them uh, uh, what to do. Uh, uh, or they don't want to be compelled by the state to um, uh, exercise those rights in a particular way. Jim, so give what a few I examples is, of rights that conservatives would agree with. Okay. So liberty of conscience and freedom of thought. Uh, I, well, let me back up and explain what I do. Instead of starting out with the word liberty and worrying, oh, that's really a, an expansive concept. We'd better be careful. We'd better not interpret that, except maybe by narrowly hewing to the specific liberties enumerated in the text of the Constitution. I say don't start that way. Start instead with our practice. And I set up what I call an archaeological excavation. Imagine you're a constitutional archaeologist and you, uh, and you dig up the following bones of a constitutional culture. <laughs> and uh, then I give a list of the rights we protected. Freedom of association, including both expressive association and intimate association. Right to live with one's family, whether nuclear or extended, right to travel or relocate, right to marry, right to decide whether to bear or beget children, right to direct the education and rearing of children, right to exercise uh, uh, dominion over one's body, including at least the right to bodily integrity and ultimately uh, the right to refuse unwanted medical treatment. That's my list of the main liberties that have been protected under this doctrine. And to me, that doesn't sound like some wild, unruly, unbounded project. That looks like um, some of the most basic decisions most people make in our lifetimes. And when people think about uh, our, our most important liberties, these are the kinds of liberties that they think about. So what I tried to do is sh show that they are bounded and show that they are integral to our constitutional democracy rather than some anomaly or some unbounded, indeterminate, made-up thing that, we gotta, uh, uh, that we've got to shut down. But, but 
Jim, um, before, we'll get to abortion in a second, because okay. the list you just read out, almost everybody agrees with all of them, except the right to, uh, you know, to, for women to um, carry, to, to discontinue their pregnancies, which we'll get to in a minute. But, sure. But you started off by, by quoting the text and by talking about the word liberty. I right. think if, if I were a uh, conservative, fairless society or Cato person, I would say, wait a minute. You skipped over property. That list right. includes the word property. Um, right. The court from 1900 to 1936 certainly seemed to protect that idea. You don't want to, I don't think, protect that idea. So why are you skipping over the word property? Okay. Well, this takes us to the uh, the banner hanging in the background here, the ghost <laughs> of Lochner. Yeah. Okay? Yes. That's uh, uh, something my students... Uh, and con law gave to me because one of the big themes in my teaching as well as in the book is how constitutional law has been haunted by the ghost of Lochner. So Lochner, of course, uh, is uh, a, a, an infamous decision uh, from 1905 uh, that symbolizes a, a whole approach from that period that you just mentioned, roughly 1900 to 1937. Um, and the court, inter the court uh, relatively stringently protected economic liberties under the due process clause. And so the court repudiated that in West Coast Hotel in 1937. And so uh, whenever the court starts protecting personal liberties under the due process clause, you're right. Some conservatives say, wait a minute, this is a double standard. You're aggressively protecting personal liberties like bodily integrity or uh, uh, procreative a right to decide whether to bear or beget children. What about economic liberties? Well, I, in that chapter on the ghost of Lochner, distinguish, uh, argue that in constitutional law, people act like they can just trot out Lochner and shut down protection basic liberties, right? Yeah. And they act like there's an agreed upon understanding of what was wrong, if anything, and Lochner. And what I do is I lay out uh, about seven different theories and show that each one has a different view of what was wrong with Lochner, okay? And uh, originalism, what's wrong with Lochner? It protected unenumerated rights uh, 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 or, or uh, protect theories like Ely's, Caroline Products Theory of Protecting Process-Oriented Rights. What's wrong is not that it protected unenumerated rights. What's wrong is that it protected substantive unenumerated rights. And so the same thing that's wrong with Lochner is wrong with Roe. And I go on, I go through a bunch of general theories and show that each entails a different view of what was wrong with Lochner. And I argue that on the best understanding of what was wrong with Lochner, uh, it was, I, I do kind of a synthesis of Cass Sunstein's view of what was wrong with Lochner with the more conventional liberal view of what was wrong with Lochner. Sunstein argues what was wrong with Lochner had nothing to do with protecting unenumerated fundamental rights. What was wrong with Lochner was that it embodied status quo neutrality. And by that, he means the court took the existing distribution of wealth and political power as presumptively justified and presumptively constitutional, such that any attempt by government 
to mess with that kind of status quo or natural economic ordering was presumptively illegitimate and unconstitutional. And he shows that that tracks Holmes's language and his dissent in Lochner very, very well. Um, and now, so I take that view as a starting point, but I, uh, and, and so I argue that what's wrong with Lochner has nothing to do with uh, uh, anything going on in Roe and uh, Casey and Obergefell. Well, let me, Jim, uh, let me pause you right there. Sorry, let me right, just pause you. There. Right, um, right. So um, in my constitutional law class, I often ask this question, um, and, and I want to ask it to you. So I know that you're in favor of you, you think Dobbs was wrongly decided and you, right. you'd be back. You'd want to go back to Roe or Casey uh, and right. find the right to terminate a pregnancy protected by what you call substantive due process. But my question to you is this. So um, I'm a middle class person who's just getting by and I want to and I have a basement and I want to or I have an apartment in the back of my house and it's my property. And I want to rent it, and I want it to rent it to somebody who won't be a nuisance to my neighbors. And there's a community, city, or state regulation that says I can't rent that. And I, and I say, now, wait a minute. I paid for this property. It's mine. I'm not going to be a nuisance to anybody. The government has no right to tell me what I can do with that property as long as I'm not acting as a, as a nuisance. And I find that right much more important, I'm being hypothetical here, than the right to terminate a pregnancy. How in the world can judges objectively choose? I mean, Bork made this point, obviously, in the early 70s. How, how, how can judges choose between which right is more fundamental? Because I think the right to, to manage my property the way I want is protected by the same clause you're pointing to <laughs> that protects the liberty of women to terminate their pregnancies. Okay. Well, let me, uh, let me uh, uh, build up to an answer to that uh, uh, by uh, spinning out um, my account of what was wrong with Lochner. Sure, okay? sure, sure. And, and then also uh, that will entail a view about economic liberties under the Constitution, and we'll get back to it. So, um, but the, so if you take the Sunstein view that what was wrong with Lochner was status quo neutrality, not an enumerated fundamental rights, um, then what's wrong with Lochner is unrelated to Rona Obergefell because far from evincing status quo neutrality, they're justified on the basis of an anti-caste principle of equality that's critical of the status quo. And so that is the status quo of traditional restrictions on reproductive freedom and the right to marry denies the status and benefits of equal citizenship for women and for gays and lesbians. And so from this, through this lens, Roe and Obergefell are tantamount to a Brown versus Board of Education for women and for gays and lesbians, respectively. It's vital to securing the status of equal citizenship for them. Okay. Now, what I do is I take that view of what was wrong with Lochner, and then I say people like Brennan or Douglas, the conventional liberal view is what was wrong with Lochner is that they protected the wrong fundamental rights. They protected economic liberties, but they should have been protecting personal liberties. Economic liberties are not fundamental. Now, I think that was a very poor strategy, and that is part of the thing that would get to your hypothetical person. You're telling me my right to do with my property is not fundamental? 
Well, what I argue is that economic liberties are fundamental, just like personal autonomy is fundamental. And I argue that uh, economic liberties and property rights are so fundamental in our constitutional scheme and so sacred in our constitutional culture that there's neither need nor good argument for aggressive judicial protection of them. They fend well enough for themselves through the political process. Um, and so um, I say that the, uh, I say that we need aggressive protection for economic liberties about as much as we need aggressive judicial protection for my right to eat apple pie on the 4th of July, my right to post my flag on my front on my front porch on the 4th of July. There's no there's no need for, for aggressive judicial protection of them because they are so aggressively protected already through the political process. Well, but but Jim, that that's a that's I think an empirical claim, not a normative claim. That's an if they if they were not protected, then you might change your mind on those issues. Then we would have to rethink it. Right. For, but, and uh, but, but hold on, for example, I, I, I think I th hold on, I think someone like Jonathan Adler or Ilya Soman and you know thoughtful libertarians. Um, right would argue that empirically you're just not correct, that that we have an over-regulated economy, we have an over-regulated zoning, world of zoning, where, where people can't open the businesses they want. Um, we have a lot of rent-seeking that keeps people out of markets that, that they want to enter. Um, and I, I don't really want to argue that because that's not that right. interesting to me. But if they were right, you'd change your mind. We see – uh, yeah, we do have a different view of the world because I think that all of those regulations that they are objecting to can be justified as uh, on the basis of public regarding reasons relating to the common good. Uh, and so I don't think any of those regulations is rooted in an inadequate reason that would be unconstitutional. I think all of those regulations could survive even a, 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 a rational basis scrutiny with some Teeth. bite right. to it. So you and I agree on that. So yeah. then I have to ask you, and I, by the way, I think that's fine. I think it's a great answer and I don't need to push back on it because <laughs> we agree on it. But here's where we're not going to agree. Although I am pro-choice, and let's, let's leave same-sex marriage out of it because that to me is a different issue. Um, on the abortion question, no one's more pro-choice than I am. I met my wife giving a talk to Planned Parenthood. I'm pro-choice all the way down. But there, uh, there are millions of Americans who think that the legitimate reason for the Supreme Court not finding abortion to be protected by the liberty word liberty in the 14th Amendment is because of the interests of the fetus. And not, you and I agree I don't agree with any of this, but they would say that that interest is strong and is commensurate with the woman's interest in, 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 and, and her family's interest in her reproductive destiny. And it's not for judges to balance those two things, that we have, that we have a real disagreement there. And when, we, and when we disagree about values like that, as Scalia said in his dissent in Casey, though he was a hypocrite on this issue big time, we, we should vote on value judgments, not assign them to Article Three judges. Again, Scalia was a hypocrite on that. 
But I'm not a hypocrite on that. <laughs> and, and, and I have sympathy for that idea that where we disagree on incommensurate values, vote on them. Don't let judges decide. Right. right. Um, see, I think that um, it, everybody, think, everybody thinks certain things should, are beyond the Constitution and should be voted on, not protected through constitutional interpretation. Um, I think that these rights, though, are so uh, constitutive of, of, who, of who, who people are, so vital to their right to live their own lives, their right uh, to make the basic decisions that so fundamentally affect their identity, their destiny, their way of life. And so I think in a diverse constitutional democracy, whatever right you protect is going to generate a great deal of disagreement, a great deal of resistance. And so if we apply your test of, well, where there's a value judgment about, um, uh, and we disagree on it, therefore we should leave it to the people, we're going to have to do that on a lot of other rights too. We're going to have to do that on uh, the right to bear arms. Certainly, we're going to have to do that on, 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 on actually most every, most every fundamental right because I think every, every right that's fundamental engenders a great deal of disagreement about what its, its scope is, what its point is, what its limits are. So, um, that's interesting, Jim. And it's an, and, and, I mean, th th that, apply, that applies to religious liberty. That apply, I mean, that just applies across the board. But, but, and, so, and so this is why some people, very few people, but some people will go all the way to a, a new version of what we'll call Thayerism, which is thinking that courts should defer to representative institutions across the board. Um, now, um, typically people like uh, Scalia would say, but wait, there is a right to bear arms enumerated in the Constitution. Although there isn't, but go ahead. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but, I think that, but I think I would say several things about that. One, Many of our commitments in the Constitution are quite abstract. Freedom of speech, free exercise of religion, equal protection, liberty, all of these clauses in the Constitution are abstract. They commit us to abstract principles. They don't enumerate their full contents. And so the for example, freedom of speech uh, doesn't enumerate a right to burn flags. Right. 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 Uh, and equal protection doesn't enumerate a right to marry someone of a different race. But in interpreting these commitments, we've built them out over time, reflecting underlying 
uh, I think, pretty eclectic political and moral theories. Uh, and I see constitutional interpretation as a project of working within a constitution that establishes a basic framework and a basic charter of abstract commitments. But we have to build out that framework. We have to build out those commitments over time. Well, Jim, the, the, um, who's we in this? Who's we? And, 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 and the right to, and most of the rights protected in the First Amendment are no more enumerated in the words freedom of speech than is abortion enumerated in the word liberty or than is interracial marriage enumerated in the word equal protection. Uh, so I, I agree with that. But who's we in that sentence? You said we have to flush out. Who's we? Well, we who interpret the Constitution, and I don't limit that to judges. See, I write mainly, I write in what a field that I call constitutional interpretation. Ju judicial review is a part of that, but it's not exactly the same thing as constitutional interpretation. Sure. So the fact that I write a book defending the practice of due process and published it on August 30th, 2022, doesn't mean that I believe that the Supreme Court um, uh, 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 doesn't mean that I have faith that the Supreme Court is going to carry forward <laughs> this project that it has been building out over time with the coherence and integrity that I, as a constitutional interpreter, would hope it would. Uh, and so I'm speaking in this book, not to the U.S. Supreme Court, expecting they are going to build it out and continue it with coherence and integrity. I'm articulating it to provide a firm justification that liberals and progressives can, uh, it, that it can build up their confidence that it is a practice that's worthy of pride and worthy of carrying forward in whatever arenas we can. And so the last chapter of the book is about the future. And this book is written as much for state court judges who are going to continue building out these rights as a matter of state constitutional law. This book is written for state, legis uh, for, for state legislators um, who uh, want to continue building out this project on the basis of a confident grasp of these principles that they think are part of the Constitution rightly understood. So uh, and so, and this is also addressed more generally to uh, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to citizens, uh, and is and the hope is that this will keep this kind of thinking about the Constitution alive during a period in which, frankly, the liberal and progressive constitution is in exile. I had, I had that question as my last question. Is the, uh, but Jim, let me, let me ask you two questions about what you just said. Um, I, I think it's two questions. Um, first of all, before I do that, I want to say your book does a masterful job, as well as I've seen, uh, of, of defending the type of rights you think our society should protect 
not just mm-hmm. the Supreme Court should protect. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, and, and people who are interested in that project, your book is as good a, they won't find a, a more articulate and persuasive um, Thank you. study. Um, however, having said that, so <laughs> I've been talking a lot. In fact, my last two podcasts were with Saul Cornell and Judd Campbell. Two people, Saul's a bleeding heart liberal like us, um, and uh, I don't know what Judd's politics are. But they are very serious historians, in my opinion. They, they are two of our best recounters of, of, of – now, I don't want – this is not an originalist question, but right. it's, it, it's based on, on, on an originalist idea. They have convinced me, both of them, and I've read most of both of their works, that – and it's just not arguable – that at the time of ratification – the founders looked at rights very differently than we look at rights today. They did not equate rights with judicially enforceable rights. Right. They expected the people and the legislature to protect those rights. And, and yeah. the courts would play only a minimal role in protecting those rights. Um, and, and, and I use all of that as, as, as reasons why I am a super theorist, as you know. Um, not because of originalism, but because I think those people were smart <laughs> and they had the right mm-hmm. idea. What I want to ask you is, even if you are suggesting that your theories work outside the courts uh, and, and you're talking to, to um, people outside the courts. Well, here we're talking about outside the U.S. Supreme Court because sure. I, was, sure. I was saying, I mean, I, I guess implicitly I'm, I'm getting at who the audience for the book is at a time when the U.S. Supreme Court is not right. an audience But here's for my this problem, book. Jim. Here's, here's the question. Here's the problem. Um, in a world, there was an article I just read yesterday, I think, that said, or an essay that said that the, the Supreme, this Supreme Court's biggest priority is itself. That the court is taking power away from state governments, from the Congress, from the, you know, even the president, you know, which is not a typical thing. Their, their priority is themselves. That's what they're doing. I think for your project, and, and they have life tenure, and this is going to be a conservative court to, to our children have children and grandchildren and all that, 30, 40, right. 50 years. Why aren't you more – I've been wanting to ask you this for a long time, and, and you've been very kind to appear at my book stuff and all that stuff. And, I, and I've never really asked you this question, and I want to ask it to you based on this book. Aren't you terrified of the Supreme Court? Like, shouldn't you have written a book that says, let's take the Supreme Court out of this? Because we're not getting to where you want to go any time in the next 30, 40, 50 years with, with the Supreme Court as it currently is. Right. Well, I think – but see, I'm not sure. I'm not entirely clear what good that would do. I think, I think that uh, when I see a Supreme Court that's mainly interested in aggrandizing power to itself to uh, enact a vision that is uh, that is at war with the liberal and progressive vision that I'm working up. I don't think, well, the best use of my time is just to blast the Supreme Court. I mean, I think we need to look for other venues in which we can keep our vision alive and push it as far as we can. Uh, And so that's why I wrote the last chapter on the future uh, about what I think liberals I, I framed it as a pep talk for liberal and progressive <laughs> and as w- some words of caution for conservatives. And the, the, the pep talk was basically strategies for liberal and progressive action. Given the reality, the uh, uh, 
it's not just a sobering reality. It's it, uh, uh, and it's uh, uh, it, it, it's really a tragic reality as well that uh, so much of of what uh, we think is fundamental uh, uh, they think is the antithesis of our constitutional uh, scheme. But, um, oh, but Jim, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah. On that point, sorry, I, I just have to, yeah. on that point, yeah. though, my study of American, I, I want to be clear about one thing. I have a yeah. principled Rawlsian veil of ignorance objection to our Supreme Court, and people who know yeah. my work know that's true. It's not. But leaving that issue aside, my study you, of American— you're just, you're just trying to soften me up by mentioning Rawls because <laughs> you know I'm a Rawlsian. Yes, you are. So one of, <laughs> yes. Um, um, I was trying to soften you up. I'm sure it won't work. Um, my, um, but as an empirical matter now, you made yeah. an empirical argument before about property. Um, my study of American history shows me that when the Supreme Court moves left— just a little bit left of center, not even way left of center, just a little bit left of center, liberals and progressives suffered tremendously in the political arena. Um, and, 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 I, and I think I can, I don't want to make that argument here, but I've made it in books and I think I'm right about it. Um, so I still think your last chapter, which is fascinating, and I'm glad you wrote it, but I still think it misses the point I'm making, which is even if we win in those other places, the, a strong Supreme Court is going to stop it. So, for, for, so, so when we win in the Supreme Court, we lose in the political arena, and that makes right. it really okay. tough. And when we right. lose in the Supreme Court, we lose in the political arena. Right. Right. <laughs> Let's get the right. court out of it. That's, I'm, I'm, I'm right. preaching now. I, right. I, I, Got okay. it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. And I think that the, we, we saw a little bit of um, the flip side of this idea in the November elections, yes, where yes. when the Supreme Court takes and dobs the court to the right, far to the yes. right of where the people are, yes, the conservatives suffer yes. at yes. the ballot at, at the ballot box. Um, see, I do. I, I think if a number of things are going on here. One is that. Progress is never linear. It's always a, a struggle. It's always a two steps forward, one step back, but then we try to take another two steps forward and one step back. And so sometimes we make progress that sticks and becomes no longer, uh, and then becomes part of the uh, the constitutional firmament, if you will. Brown, for example. Uh, Brown, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brown, loving. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I also think that it's, it's, I don't want to count our chickens before they hatch, but I do think that Obergefell, because of its conservative strains of concern for the stability of families and promoting the moral goods of uh, families. I think uh, because of all of the conservative strains in Kennedy's opinion, I think that, you know, despite the vote, the 36 senators who voted against, 36 yeah. Republicans who voted against the Respect for Marriage Act, I'm looking at the 12 who voted, I'm looking at the 12 who voted for it. And also I'm looking at 
the ridiculous justifications the conservatives who voted against it gave, which was a lot of them were, oh, well, I, su I would support same-sex marriage. I just need more robust protection for religious liberty. Right. It was striking that Lindsey Graham and Mike Lee were not saying, you know, damn it, same-sex marriage is is not God's plan for human beings, and so we got to repudiate it. So I do think that Obergefell uh, uh, has some chance of joining the firmament in that sense, in the way Roe and Casey uh, never uh, uh, never did. Um, so um, there's a lot swirling around here in our discussion, but I do think that um, I want to come back and pick up a few points. Saul Cornell, yes. uh, I do think it is important that liberals not cede history to the conservatives. Yep. And so it is very important that we have a solid core of liberal and progressive historians whether or not they conceive themselves as historians, they are doing powerful work of A, rebutting the originalist claims about history, and B, showing that there's a firm footing for liberal and progressive vision in in our history and uh, tra uh, tradition. Well, just to be because, clear, I, Jim, I'm sorry, Saul is absolutely yeah. an historian, book, I mean, beginning, middle, I mean, Judd is a law professor. Yeah. Saul right, is right. just for the audience. Right. Saul is in a story. Sure. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's important. Uh, I, w w a number of uh, um, uh, liberals and progressives have participated in that project. Yes. I'm just I just mentioned Saul because you yeah. you yes. mentioned him. Yes. Now, I also think many historians have pointed out that rarely has the court brought about social change that was progressive. I take all I take all of that. And I'm not making universal claims about judicial review and about what courts should do. I'm take I'm starting from where we are, taking our constitution and constitutional practice as it is, and asking, well, can we work up a theory that will fit and justify this? So this is a, a Dworkinian project of saying, we shouldn't ask, let me see, what was decided for us 200 years ago, and let's go back to that. Sure. Uh, we should start with where we are and ask, and try to figure out what's eminent in our practice. You know, what's, what, you know, what account of the practice puts it in its best light. And I tried to do that in, the, in this book. Starting where we are, like it or not, conservatives, we do have this practice that has protected these basic liberties. And then I try to rebut all of the conservative arguments about how this is unbounded this is unruly, this imposes a liberal view upon the people by showing all the ways in which, uh, A, it's a very bounded project, uh, B, it's a project, as a project of common law constitutional interpretation, it moves slowly through reasoning by analogy from case to case, it doesn't hurl us down a slippery slope, and just 
and also just because it reads the Constitution as embodying moral principles that protect some rights that liberals care about, doesn't mean that it's reading a grand liberal theory into the Constitution. Oh, okay, so but, I, but just, I, I go through all of these objections yeah. and show how, flaw, how flawed they are, how limited and how coherent and how sound these practices are. Well, you do that. Um, I want to go off script a little bit, uh, script right. off, off our roadmap a little bit um, yeah. and, and ask you what I think is the question that I, the biggest question I have about Ronald Dworkin and about yeah. you, you have long been a proponent of what I'll call the moral reading of the right. Constitution. Uh, and, and of course, I'm a firm believer that given the open-ended phrases, if we're going to have right. a judicial review of right. a strong variety, the moral reading is in, indispensable. But here's my problem. And I yeah. have really been wrestling with this, as have many, uh, I think, progressives. So Adrian Vermeule, um, uh -huh. you know, Adrian believes in the moral reading of the Constitution as well. And mm -hmm. Adrian believes, uh, and Adrian is as Dworkinian as you are, I think, uh, in, in process. At least he claims to be. I've reviewed his book. I think, I think he does take a very Dworkinian view of the Constitution. Yet, if I, I, my, my, my dream would be to have you and Adrian at the same time. But if I did, you would, you would agree on some things, like the administrative state. We would agree, you would mm -hmm. agree with that and him. But on most, many moral questions, you, yeah. I, you, you are both incredibly intelligent, smart, both lawyers and law professors, and to some extent historians, to some degree, um, yet you disagree vehemently on what the moral reading of the Constitution ought to be. Right. How do I get so, – so, so when at that moment in time, when you and Adrian are debating about abortion or same-sex marriage, because you would disagree on both, and you're both using the same process, a Dokinian right. process, to get to, to reach completely different results. That makes my head explode. And I want to say I respect both of your intelligence. I respect your morals more, <laughs> but I respect both of your intelligence and your experience and your abilities. How do we pick? I mean, how okay. can we possibly pick well, between you and Adrian? Th right. Well, th this is a this is a fundamental question. How do we how do we choose the constitutional theory? Um, and um, I uh, don't think that uh, we choose a constitutional theory simply based on a conception of what we think interpretation is. Um, I think we choose a constitutional theory ultimately based on what Sunstein called second-order perfectionist judgments about what theory will make our Constitution or practice the best it can be. Let me back up a second. He wrote a piece called Second Order Perfectionism on my, in an exchange with me on my first book, Securing Constitutional Democracy. And he said some people, like Dworkin and Fleming, are first order perfectionists. They say, interpret the Constitution directly so as to make it the best it can be, put it in its best light. He said, but everybody is a second-order perfectionist in the sense that they believe in if you choose their theory and apply it, that will make the Constitution the best it can be. Okay, So originalists clearly think that. They think we've got this bad constitutional practice because people haven't been originalists. They think the way to make our constitutional practice the best it can be is to be originalists. 
the Thayers, the Thayerians think that about their theory. The 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 process perfectors like Ely think that about their theory. In other words, the battle, the choosing among theories occurs on Dworkin's and my turf. You know, which theory will make the constitutional order the best it can be. Uh, and so I think that, um, uh, so that's how we choose. But to back up, it should be no more surprising that if you do a moral reading, there will be disagreement about what's the moral reading that best fits and justifies our Constitution. It should be no more, that doesn't invite more disagreement than we already had. We already had deep disagreement about what the original understanding of the Constitution was. We already had deep disagreement about what this line of cases comes to. I see deep disagreement everywhere in constitutional law within every clause, within every, about every theory. And so I don't think that just be, that, that, uh, advocating a moral reading suddenly brings in disagreement that we didn't already have. It comes to a head, and it makes it clearer to see what the stakes are, but we already had that disagreement. But what if it turns out, and I'm sorry this is a self-serving question, but it is, what if it turns out that our disagreements, which we're going to have, you're right, about the best moral reading of our Constitution and how we resolve those disagreements eventually. What if it turns out that what I will call strong judicial review, which I'll just contrast with a Thayer view of judicial review. We all agree there has to be, there can't be a 35-year-old president. We just, and, and the court should enforce that provision. So we all agree on that. That's weak judicial review. But what if it turns out that strong judicial review makes our moral disagreements worse? And uh, I think that's an our and 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 because people see, I think Linda Greenhouse and and Reva Siegel are two people I you know respect unbelievably, and they're completely wrong about Roe and Casey and the back all of their backlash arguments to Roe and Casey are wrong. That's a subject for a different day. But my point is, what if it turns out that you and I are both pro-choice? That if the court had not done Roe the way it did, had done it either much slower or not at all that abortion rights in 2022 would actually be more protected than they currently are, which, by the way, I think is absolutely true. I think the court made, over the long term, a woman's right to control her destiny worse. What if I'm right about that? Well, here, this takes us to the big question. There are questions of strategy here. Like, are you going to get Far, are you going to make more progress toward a liberal and progressive vision of the Constitution by taking small, min, incremental, min, minimalist steps? Or are you going to make more progress by taking the huge steps, acknowledging there's going to be backlash? Because then maybe you can still push it forward and you'll be farther along the road to a liberal and progressive vision despite the backlash than you would have had you not gone, uh, had the big step. I think that um, uh, all of these, I think it's, for, it's important to study the difference between Oberg, the run-up to Obergefell 
and the run-up to Roe and Casey. Um, because the run-up to Obergefell was a ma the product of a masterful stra strategy of how to pursue securing marriage equality in the United States. So what do you do? You don't go straight to the Supreme Court in 2003. I say that because Lawrence v. Texas, protecting the right of same-sex intimacy, right. or, uh, was decided in 2003. You don't go straight to the Supreme Court of the United States in 2003. What you do instead is you go first to the state Supreme Court in Vermont. And you go then to the state Supreme Court in Massachusetts. In other words, you go to the places where your chances of success are the greatest. Okay? Yeah. So it's okay in 2003 to go to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, as people did. And won. And, and won. they won. Yeah. Right? Now, um, or it's okay in 1999 to go to the Vermont Supreme Court where they where they where they virtue where they where, where they uh, struck down a law prohibiting same uh, sex marriage but they left it to the legislature to devise a remedy but the legislature did right by uh, Chief Justice uh, Amistoy in uh, Baker versus State in having a pretty a, a fairly rich vision through uh, civil unions, which provided all the rights and responsibilities of marriage, just not the name. Um, and that was rooted in prudential mi minimalist strategy to minimize backlash. And I think it worked because, you know, nine years later, uh, the Vermont legislature took that final step. So what you do is instead of going straight to the Supreme Court, you go to the states where you're most likely to win. And sure, you're going to have some backlash there. Backlash against uh, Obergefell, probably in the 2004 presidential election. As litigators, you next go to California. Well, California had backlash in the form of Proposition uh, uh, 8, uh, uh, repudiating same-sex marriage. So all, even at the state level, it's not purely linear. But the point is that this is, this is closer to the process you're talking about where you, 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 you take steps in the places you're most likely to win. And only after you've virtually won the battle in the constitutional culture do you go to the Supreme Court in Obergefell in 2015, okay? Now, if they'd taken that approach, would we be in a different situation with Casey and Roe? We don't know. We, uh, you I'm, know pretty sure. uh, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I know. I do know that. You know, Marianne Glendon's arguments in Rights Talk and in her work before then on abortion. Although, of course, she wasn't saying there should be any kind of a right to decide whether to terminate a pregnancy, but she did a comparative study that showed that uh, in U European countries had settled this matter. More in a in, in, in a way that uh, was a more stable and b more uh, respectful of 
the claims on the other side, the op opposition to abortion, than did the than was the United States. But see, uh, so anyway, we don't know uh, whether we would be in a better position today or not. But Oberga, the contest between Obergefell and Roe is yeah. so, important. So Jim, we're running out of time. I could talk. Okay, to you okay. For, well, hold on. I, I can well, talk we to barely you. started. I know, but we're almost at an hour, <laughs> believe it or not. But I, I have a comment about what you just said, and then a, and then yeah. a final question that I think will go to the heart of your book, um, which, again, everybody should read. It is um, Construing, Constructing Basic Liberties, a Defensive Substantive Due Process. Uh, if nothing else, by the way, I think you totally destroyed the arguments that there shouldn't be substantive due process. And anyone interested, <laughs> anyone interested in that, in taking that position or responding to it, should read your book. Um, and what you just said, even with how carefully the um, same-sex marriage movement went about its business, and, and everybody should remember that that Ted Olson and and David yeah. Boyes uh, bringing the suit in California with Ted being very conservative, the guy who argued Bush versus Gore, that yeah. was a big part of the Ted's on Time Mag cover of Time Magazine as the conservative. Yeah. Um, but even after all of that, I want to ask you this yeah. question. It's a small question, and then I'll attach a big question to it. The small question is, even with all of that, the only reason, I think, that Obergefell and Windsor together did not create a role-type backlash, although arguably I think Trump loses without Obergefell, but leaving that aside for the moment, is because of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Justice Kennedy wants to decide the state issue the same day, he, the same term he decides the federal issue um, and the Prop 8 case, the case that Ted actually argued. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg joins with the conservatives to find no standing to appeal and dismisses the state case because she knew Without a right. doubt, it would be a mistake to have done it that quickly. It was too soon. It yeah. was too soon. But but so 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 the point I'm making there is that's just lucky. If there had been another less sophisticated litigator than Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the court, Kennedy, who wanted to decide the issue that day, would have struck down all those state laws the same day he struck down DOMA. That and I'm, the, my rhetorical question is: I think that creates a ten times bigger backlash, and we just got lucky. We just got lucky that Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote a standing right. opinion she didn't believe to avoid that result. And now my big question. Right. So you can address well, that. Well, I, big... I'm assuming this is leading to term limits. No, 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 no. I wish we had time <laughs> okay. to talk about that. No, I want to talk about you. Go back to your book. Yeah. You can respond to yeah. that thing about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but I think you agree with it. I mean, it was a masterful move on her part. Right. Okay. So here's my big question. And I got a little bit confused about this, frankly, um, reading your, your book. And you started off this podcast. One of the first things you said was you talked about equality. Right. And, I th and, and, and to me, I do believe in robust judicial protection for equality. That's the only place right. I believe in robust judicial protection. Tell me the relationship between equality and – why do we need substantive due process for these issues if we can use equality – Equal protection clause, maybe even privileges or immunities, although that has issues with aliens and that kind of thing. But but where does equality fit into your themes? Okay. Your book? Well, uh, chapter eight of my book is on the relationship between yeah. liberty and equality. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of progressives have been making arguments for many years that equality arguments are on firmer ground than, than liberty arguments I'm under one of them. substantive <laughs> due process. Right, right. And so what I argued is that there, uh, and, and so some progressives say equality is good, liberty is bad, okay, to put it really crudely. 
Um, what I argue that there are good liberty arguments and, the, and there are good equality arguments. They overlap. Uh, Kennedy's official liberty arguments <laughs> in Lawrence and Obergefell all have implicit equal, equality themes. You know, he's uh, so he packs a lot of concern for not demeaning the lives of, of same-sex couples into his protection of their liberty to marry. Uh, and so I uh, develop uh, the view uh, that uh, we have strong commitments to basic liberties, we have strong commitments uh, 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 to securing the status of equality for all, and I see the commitments to liberty and equality as working together to pursue those extremely important, noble uh, commitments. Um, and I also favor an eclecticism in constitutional argument. I think it's good to make both arguments. And I think that in a multi-member court, it's good to build most, most arguments in because some people are going to be moved by the liberty argument, some people are going to be moved by the equality argument. I think Kennedy was wary of equality arguments. He was worried that if he based Lawrence and Obergefell on equality, he would implicitly be saying that sexual orientation is a suspect classification and, and uh, would be implicitly be reaching a decision that the progressives wanted him to reach, but which he as a conservative right. was wary of, right. okay? Uh, and so he thought liberty was the narrower, firmer ground. Certainly, uh, in, Windsor. And, Certainly in Windsor. Right, right. And so, um, but anyway, I, I also develop a, 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 some fa a, a view about why in certain contexts one argument might seem better to judges than another. Now, it's not a view about, it's not my own view, it's more a view about why it might have thought, why it might have seemed to judges making the decisions when they did that a certain ground was better than another. So take Blackman and Roe, okay? So, the first criterion for what, why a judge might have gone one route rather than the other is what I call Occam's razor. That is, which will involve the smallest step from where we are doctrinally. And where were we doctrinally with respect to right to bear or beget a child in 1973? Well, we had Griswold, we had Eisenstadt. So it seemed to, to Blackman that it was a small step from those cases that contemplated a right to decide whether to bear or beget a child. I'm using the language from I, yes, uh, yes, Eisenstadt. Yes. It seemed to him it to be a very small step to right to decide whether to terminate a pregnancy. Where were we with equality? Well, in 1971, for the first time ever, the Supreme Court had said classifications on the basis of gender 
are subject to scrutiny under the Equal Protection Clause. But the court thought that for there to be a violation of the Equal Protection Clause, a law had to be treating women differently from men with respect to that very thing, okay? So progressives who think equality arguments are superior need to understand that Blackman couldn't see that in his view of the world. In 1974, one year later, he was in the majority in the Gedaldig case, yes. which held yes. that discrimination on the basis of pregnancy was not discrimination on the basis of sex. Yeah, incredible. Why? Because it didn't treat pregnant women differently from pregnant men. Now, <laughs> at the time, at the time, if you uttered that, it seemed a joke. Now we, with our more fluid conceptions of gender identity, uh, you know, think in terms of pregnant persons, not, uh, and so. Well, some of us do. Is, some of us but, do. Most do not. Right, right. <laughs> but the point is that this Gedaldig mindset is still alive and well, and we see it in the, the extremely hasty and contemptuous dismissal Alito gives to the equal protection yeah. argument in Dobbs, 100%. citing Gedaldic. My point is that in 1973, it would have seemed to Blackman that it was a smaller step from the liberty cases to protect the right to decide whether to terminate a pregnancy than it would have been from equality. He couldn't even see the equal protection argument given that he was a part of that Godaldig mindset. By 1992, he saw the gender equality argument and the liberty argument, yep. and he made both arguments yep. in his concurrence yep. in Casey. Yeah, that's a great answer, Jim. I'm going to have yeah. to call it there, okay. unfortunately. But before I do, I want to embarrass you a little bit. So that last answer is a great reason why I've been a fan of yours from the 32 years I've been teaching constitutional <laughs> law, um, because... And, and you're really one of only a very few people who fit into this category. A lot of your work, philosophical isn't exactly what I mean, but a lot of your work is theoretically brilliant and, and philosophically sophisticated. There are, and there are many philosophy professors who, whose work is theoretically brilliant and philosophically oriented. But you also, that answer you just gave shows you also have a lawyer's brain. You work for Cravath. I didn't mention that. But you have, you have a lawyer's, you have a lawyer's litigator's understanding of constitutional law on the ground. I, I'm, yeah. I, I don't have the philosophical yeah. training you have, with, yeah. but I have the on the ground right. instincts. Right. You have both. Right. And that makes you a, a, a special, um, uh, commentator on our constitutional landscape. So I really urge everybody not just to read this newest book, but to go back and read your your critiques of originalism, which are breathtakingly devastating, which I modeled my critiques, basically I modeled my critiques on. Um, I hope I've added something to it, but but I've, I've used your work quite a bit. Um, and, and I really want everyone listening to this to understand that there are very few people uh, people in America who can do both of the things you can do, which is talk about working in walls with amazing sophistication and talk about litigation strategy and the understanding okay. of Blackman in 1973. So thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank this. you very much. And, Eric, and I really appreciate you being here. It's been a pleasure.